Hello, and welcome to another mini-sode of Movies We Dig, a podcast about films, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Christy Vogler, and today we're back here with our resident Percy Jackson specialist, Hannah Bazinaw. Hi. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you for having me. Will I be leaving? Who knows? Ooh, mystery. Or why are you introducing a mystery all of a sudden? I don't know. Mysteries are fun. Makes people listen. That is true. That is true. Well, today we might be taking a quick look. We're not good at quick right now. So you're sticking around long enough to finish this episode, at least. Um, A quick look at episode four of Disney's Percy Jackson and the Olympians, a show adapted from Rick Borden's 2006 book, The Lightning Thief. Um, as always, we'll be conducting a shovel test of the series by giving you a brief overview of the episode, providing you some information on the ancient sources, and just kind of telling you what we thought about it. Once the entire season wraps, we'll have the cr- whole crew in here to help discuss the series in its entirety. So, as we always like to start, Hannah, can you give us kind of an overview of the episode and whether or not you dug it? I dig it. I dig it so much. I think this is what I mean when I say that adaptations can be better than their source material. We start off with the kids showing a little cabin on a train and talking about their issues. Then they argue over like their views on child support and if mommy really loves them. Then the pigs, I mean the police. Uh, (laughs) I kind of appreciate that Annabeth is sitting there being like, do you have a warrant or are we under arrest? I'm like, snaps and now and now you shut up and don't say anything to the cop but anyway well like like i mentioned to you i've actually watched this with my friends and my friend who's Mm -hmm. a black woman she had something to say about that so we'll circle back around to that the police or like security something they accuse them of trashing the cabin a little nice suburban white lady comes along and is like i love my children but your mommy doesn't love you (laughs) yeah they take refuge in the st louis arch and athena apparently suck in this adaptation because athena's just like yeah go kill this bitch well she just lets the creature in right like doesn't send it after her christy Know what? You know Christy. what? I definitely we're gonna talk about that moment because I that moment actually gave me so much more hope for Medusa's storyline going forward. Me too. Yeah, Athena sucks. I told you Athena sucks. Like there's no surprises there, but I like what it did for the series going forward, hopefully. Did you like it? I loved it. I loved it. I think it's like the epitome of an adaptation being better than its original because it simultaneously has the most changes any of these episodes have had while putting the story perfectly on track and to have a much more impactful message than the original books did. Because the original books are kind of like meh towards the gods. Like Percy's not not even ever really angry about it. He's just like, oh, it is what it is. Okay, I think Rick just got, like, more cynical within the last 15 years because the musical is like that, too. Percy's also angry in the musical. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he was involved in that. So, like, anytime I see something in both the musical and the new show, I'm like, ooh, Rick feels strongly about this. And it, it, I think it makes it makes both Annabeth and Percy really good foils for each other, right? Like, we, they, they keep doing a really good job of presenting their backstories and kind of their way how, like how they're operating because like as you pointed out like they had that discussion about their relationships with their godly parents and like percy's like i don't get it but annabeth actually explains it in a way that you know for it makes sense because she's like at least the gods have rules that if you know to follow those rules then like you know what to expect as opposed to like mm, that's how she's explained it now Obviously, that's not proven true. 
uh, that explanation does not make it any better. It makes it a yikes even more. Yeah, there's okay. You want to know my biggest yikes? Like it, it gave me like full on anxiety when I heard this line is when they come to the arch. Annabeth says, that's how you show Athena your love, Ooh. a monument to the power of perfection. And I'm like, Ugh. Ugh, I hate it. I hate it so much. It hurts. Like, it's not. It's supposed to be wrong. I know. It, but like, that's just it. I I hate it because like that's very much like my mentality of what I had growing up was. I grew up in a small town. I grew up as the smart kid. So I'm the kid who like when I took my first college class while I was still in high school and got a C. I had a panic attack. I called my mom. She thought I'd been in a car crash because I was like so upset. Um, and like, that's just it. I was the only one holding myself up to that level of must be perfect. It's, uh, man, anxiety inducing. And I don't like that for Annabeth at all. And I think Echidna, you know, I was excited. I'm like, oh, mother of monsters. This is going to be really cool. And we'll definitely... We'll be focusing on her a bit in this one. But I was also just like, there's not really any source material for her. So I can't really get mad at what they do with her. So and I think they did work that to their favor. And like I said, a lot of the stuff that they they're doing a really good job, too, of like connecting threads from the first three episodes to like I they they're not leaving anything hanging. So once again, we return to that conversation that Sally has with Percy about monsters and demigods and heroes and like, what are they actually? Um, we revisit that topic. Once again, we have, we revisit um, Medusa's kind of storyline in a different way. And I, so it's like, okay, I, I like that. I like that, you know, they haven't just dropped a plot line for the sake of continuing the story overall. I did have one major, major issue with this episode. Well, maybe not major, maybe a medium issue. When Annabeth is talking about like, her childhood she like she talks about it and she's like oh i was a gift for a while until my stepmom came along ah oh, it takes the blame all off her dad when like that's a grown man who's still responsible for caring for you he should not have let things get so bad in your home that you felt like the only other option was to run away at seven years old mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. but hannah disney loves themselves an evil stepmother storyline yeah, I was I was actually going to ask, could you explain the Athena's thought children a little bit more? Or like, is it basically what was explained in the show? Sort of. It's explained a little, just a little bit more in the books. It's like, it is when Athena has like a mental connection with someone and she's like, oh, like mind baby. I like the concept though. It's, it's like, I think what's interesting to think about is that it brings up this point that you can have a very strong connection with people that is not sexual in nature and it can still create something really wonderful. So like me, Colin and Lige doing this podcast together. That's like our brainchild of sorts. It's mostly Colin's brainchild. I'm just along for the ride. But still, like that's a really cool thing that's created. So I like that that's exploring that idea, especially because Athena is supposed to be a quote unquote virgin goddess. All that really means is like she's an unmarried goddess. Doesn't necessarily mean that she was, although to be fair, of any of the three goddesses that are often Voted to be virgin goddesses, Athena ranks highest in that overall. I also was just kind of, I feel bad for Grover. It's like, where do we get his rot family story? Is all we get Uncle Ferdinand? We got it. Uncle Ferdinand. Yeah, there, there's not much more Grover in the book. Before that scene, I did want to talk about the very opening scene because I thought it was... I hate it. Okay, 
honestly, I watched that scene. I'm like, this is the most parental moment I've ever witnessed in terms of like Sally, the line of like, we paid for this class. We need to take it. It's like, I I know so many parents that are so well-meaning and they've just reached that level of frustration that it like, it kind of felt real. It felt real of Sally because otherwise before this, she's been portrayed as kind of a perfect mother, even though she's like in a relationship to protect Percy, but with a guy who's like treats them terribly and things like that. So I thought this was an interesting moment. Explain to me why you hate it. Okay, maybe I'm overreacting a little bit. I mean, this is good. I did appreciate it. It's when like Percy is like, breathe, mommy. That's what you always tell me. I'm like, I don't want to, I don't really have parents. So like, I didn't have this exact like dynamic. Um, I didn't have parents in the traditional sense, at least. I've never like witnessed this dynamic in my life. But I've watched like my best friend growing up, her mom parentified her so much. And it was like, mm-hmm. I don't know, it just icked me out to see like a kid comforting his mom mm-hmm. like that. Like, oh, breathe. I'm so emotionally intelligent because I've had to watch you have some breakdowns at least that's the implication to me i mean i mean i sometimes that's like it is kind of amazing and i only get to say this because i'm currently helping watch you know my niece and nephew of like it's really amazing how much like human intelligence children have human emotional intelligence they have like they they truly understand what's going on they don't necessarily articulate it perfectly every time but like i think it was believable enough that like if sally has been you know helping percy deal like if he's seen things all the time as a little kid and he's panicked about it maybe that is just something that's really common between them is like she reminds him to breathe and calm down and he's you know he's learned it enough to like recognize that she's panicked in that moment like something it's not really about the class it's something else that's deeper and he's like i just know when i feel like that this is what we do so it's i think it's probably my personal hang up honestly i'm gonna come back to this later like i thought it was interesting where you saw some cracks and like that's just it sally's human like of course parents crack under the frustration of your kid not doing something that you're really desperate for them to do like in this case it's it's because she believes it's it's so percy will be okay in the future right like swimming is an important life skill that most children should know I too had swim lessons. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yep. So I could just have an unfavorable view of parents in general. That's very possible. I mean, obviously, <laughs> you've got more than enough parents here to hate on, is what I was going to say. It was like, there's plenty of parents. Oh, to hate no. On here. I see what you were going to say, Christy. Obviously, you yes, have no, issues. No, I'm no, just kidding. I don't no. think you were going to say that, Christy. <laughs> I'm scared now. No, it's okay. Okay. Well, Okay, this shifts me to the so then all of a sudden where he's in a desert, right? And um, we hear we see a cloaked figure holding a lantern, and like he says a few different things. It's like forbidden child brings doom, blah blah blah. And then she is coming, which I do appreciate. Is this Kronos or is this something uh, else? Respectfully, I don't know what other desert man voice nightmare it would be. Okay, it just to me was interesting that he was depicted with a lantern because I don't know that that is a common um, Kronos symbol attribute to to Kronos yeah. most of the time. He's more famously associated with the scythe, for instance. So without any Percy Jackson background whatsoever, I was like, I think this is supposed to be Kronos based on what Hannah has told me before, but I am not a hundred percent on that so yeah in his dream 
dreams in the books, sometimes he hears other voices. Mm-hmm. It, it was like the same voice, I think, right? You're you're the specialist. I don't know. You know what? I pretty much thought it was just Kronos, but now I'm questioning myself. <laughs> Who holds a lantern? That is a great question because, um, yeah, I don't know that that a lantern is really... Charon was was something that came to mind for me. Yeah, me too. But I don't like that's that was more the vibes I was getting was Charon, honestly. But I don't know that a lantern is specifically associated, at least as an attribute, um, to any particular Greek god that I can think of. So interesting, interesting choice for interesting sure. Choice. Yeah, it it definitely gives it gave me psychopompous vibes. That's for sure, and it's not Hermes. So I think that was. Percy brought out some legitimate concerns about the gods, and then a- Annabeth, like I said, offers an explanation for why she connects to it. And what I appreciate is, is that Percy's like, you know what? I respect that. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I respect that that's what works for you until we get to the end of the episode, because that will not work out for her. I have, like, a few other minor gripes, which is that, like, they, they were in the St. Louis Arch, and Rover's looking around, and he's kind of, like, mad. And he walks away and Percy's like, oh, he doesn't like seeing animals being hurt. I thought he was talking about the colonization of America, but okay. Yeah, I, okay. That, that felt was, very tone deaf. It, yeah, because you literally saw something say manifest destiny. And I'm like, Ugh, more cringe words for me. But yeah, and that was tied to the story of Pan that you had explained a little bit last week to me. And like how that's what searchers do. And then there was also the the reference to the centaurs that they saw on the train. The, the connection I was thinking of, like when he was looking at, it was the slot, like it was a picture. I saw Ma- Manifest Destiny, but I also saw like the slaughter of the buffalo. And what I'm wondering, what I'm wondering is like when he was seeing that, what he was actually seeing was the slaying of centaurs. Although like both would obviously matter to him. But I was wondering if like maybe that was, if people are on a train and they see buffalo running, it's like maybe they're really centaurs i will say i i saw a clip of like the movie again and and looked at that grover and it's like dude looks like you're in high school if not your like first year of college compared to like at least this grover looks young like the rest of them so i do appreciate that i will say you won't hear me you won't hear me praise the movie often but i do like that scene in the beginning where like percy's walking out of school and a bus goes by and like he sees his dad and a bus goes by and then he's gone. That really, to me, established like, oh, I've always been there. That's something that I was like, oh, OK, which we don't but we don't see anything like that until like the narrated who just who's just quoting Sally back to him. Yeah. And that's that's the thing with the narrated too. It's like, don't worry, your daddy's always been watching, says yet another person speaking on his behalf. Come on. Yes. I I also liked how they fixed the solution of the arch does not actually go over the river. It's like, we'll just send a nice little giant water pool thing to catch him and bring him into the river. I really wanted them to just say, fuck geography. This is this is already a demigod <laughs> world because uh, because he thought it was like, I'm pretty sure he thought like each side of the arch was on different sides of the river. And that's why it was written like that. Mm-hmm. Why they didn't fact check in 2006. I don't know. Like, I know the internet didn't exist, but encyclopedias had to. I just that wish they, they I just wish they, they, they kind of said, fuck it and just put the river in between. Shout out to Annabeth for explaining how it works, because I was just like, oh, that's a cool building. It is cool. I have seen it in person. It's, yeah, it's not that cool. It's giant. Respectfully. So, like- that's fun. I didn't go inside it, though. 
Can you uh, go ahead and talk about that moment when they're confronted by the cops, what you mentioned with your friend? Yes. So I got to watch this episode with my friends. Shout out to Leah, Ava, and Rebecca. But I got to watch this with them because I was visiting them for New Year's. And my friend Rebecca, who is a Black woman, was watching it. And they were like silent for a minute. And then she said, like, it's good to see represented, but hard to watch Mm -hmm. because they've had cops talk to them that way before. So like, good to be represented, kind of upsetting to see, I guess. But also, I can't speak too much on it because, you know... I am a white girl. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, you know, that's that's the importance of having better diverse representation in the characters we see. But it's also, you know, the problem, too, of like, but who's still the creator, the writer, the scripter at the end? Because like, just because you can visually see yourself there doesn't mean that the interactions happening feel right. And that's always important for authenticity. So I think that's that's really interesting to note that. So the did the moment feel felt real to her and not? Yeah. Okay. I think that's important. The most unrealistic part was probably that. Actually, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> to be fair, she was with two white... No, she's with one white boy and one dark... I don't know. Yeah, that could have gone a lot of yeah. ways. When I rewatched it, I noticed that it... Like, even though Percy is the one being the most disrespectful to the cop, but, like, Annabeth is the one that gets yelled at and, like, gets threatened. Like, Grover is calling him, um, like, Mr. and stuff. And Sir... And when Annabeth is like, are we arrested or not? Then she's the one who's like, don't mess with me, little girl. Yeah, the little girl line in particular. Yeah, I I felt that too. That was a good observation. I'm glad you got a chance to watch it with your friend to make note of that. Because I mean, that's what was hard about Medusa, right? Like some of this is just a little too real and it hurts. Like Annabeth's knee-jerk reaction to call Medusa a liar. I'm like, I hate that because that's what really happens. And it sucks. I will say echidna oh such a good change so first of all i told you we've talked about how we won't i was like sad we wouldn't get alleged terrorist percy because he didn't blow up the bus now they've blown up a train we still get it things are back on track no pun intended so excited for that i also just like that grover made the basic observation of the glass was blown inward and not outward He's been sitting on that anyway to like throw out the cops. He's like, excuse me, sir. Does it not seem like to you that the glass, there's more glass gone than present in the room? One would suppose then that it came from outside the train. Yes. Therefore, not us. Exactly. Right. Like he he had that back pocket. And then all of a sudden the kidna sits down. He's like, wait a minute. That being said, I think I think we need to introduce the mother of monsters. Yes. This isn't your fault. But sadly... You're going to have to bear the burden of your parents' mistakes today. Listen, lady, we've run across a few monsters like you, and we've sent them all packing. Monsters like me? Well, of course they're like me. They were my children. The mother of monsters. Echidna. Dun, dun, dun. So good. Okay, the line delivery. This is this is the best possible change that I've seen this entire show. Mm-hmm. In the books, but, you know, they start out on a train and then they're actually just like waiting for a layover train and they just go sightseeing and that's how they end up at the arch. Mm-hmm. And when they go to the top, Percy just happens to get stuck up there because Annabeth and Grover get the last seat in the elevator. So he's just like waiting for it to come back around when this woman who's described unfavorably, <laughs> yeah, a point to like a problem the books had, which was like conflating other with evil but it's described as like this overweight woman like walking a yapping chihuahua not surprising and then the chihuahua turns into a chimera so that's why it's in him like a dog carrier and that's it then he fights her and boom gone over 
Okay. Yeah. I I was very intrigued by the actor and her physical appearance because she was giving me an older woman, but um like very suburban mom. Suburban mom, a little Midwest. Like there's there's some twangish mm. in there that sounds Midwest or maybe Southern to me. Like it's it's definitely not it's not California mom, right? And I gotta say, I love her jacket. I love that she's supposed to be terrifying, but she's in soft pastel colors and mom jeans, and like she's supposed to come off. Honestly, I kind of wrote down. I was like, "Is she a Karen? She comes off a little Karen almost." I that's what I thought too because I was also watching it and I noticed that like she's the one who points the finger at the kids in the first place, and then when like the cops are watching them, she's the one who's like, "Oh, you're making them uncomfortable. You should give the you should give them some space." Um, and it's only when she asks that they actually leave. Yeah. So like, I thought the choice of how to portray her in the show was actually really good and really interesting, but it's of course not how it was representing Greek mythology. So do you want to you want to hear about Echidna from Greek mythology from our source materials? Yeah, go for it. All right. So Echidna has early references just like Perseus and Medusa as early as Hesiod's Theogony, which we've talked about a lot, but she's not really tied to a particular heroic legend, which is interesting because it means you can do a lot with her character. I think she's really good for adaptations for that reason. Many of her children are, of course, in a lot of these legends with heroes, including the Chimera, who's with Bellerfon, um, which I always really closely associate with Perseus in a lot of ways. The Sphinx was another one of her children who Oedipus defeats. And then we also get like the learning in Hydra and Cerberus, which is like like half of what the labors Heracles had to deal with were like Echidna's children. And that's just to name a few of them. So like all of monsters we hear about in legends, they're usually her children in some way. Unlike the later imaginings of Medusa, half woman, half serpent, Echidna has always been described that way. It's interesting to think that like Medusa and Echidna over time have been kind of mashed up together with that representation of like half woman, half snake, because Echidna had always been depicted that way. Hesiod describes her as another unmanageable monster, like nothing human nor like the immortal gods either in a hollow cave. This was the divine and haughty Echidna. The half of her is a nymph with a fair face and eyes glancing, but the other half is a monstrous serpent, terrible, enormous, and squirming and voracious there in Earth's secret places. For there she has her cave on the underside of a hollow rock, far from the immortal gods and far from all mortals. There the gods ordained her a fabulous home. So apparently she's got a really nice house. Uh, to live in, which she keeps underground among the Aramoi, Grisly Echidna, a nymph who never dies, and all her days she is ageless. So the fact that they aged up the character I thought was kind of interesting because that's like the one difference is like she is half nymph technically, which is interesting to think about. There's one other association she does have and it is associated with the death. Do you know about like how Apollo was able to establish a sanctuary at Delphi? No. Well, he had to defeat a dragon. And this this comes from the Homeric hymn to Apollo, which is also a lot of those Homeric hymns are attributed to the same time as Hesiod and Homer. And it just kind of talks about how, like, it's kind of depressing. It says, then Phobos Apollon boasted over her after having slayed her so he could take her sanctuary and turn it into this place for him. Now rot here upon the soil that feeds man. You at least shall live no more to be a fell bane to man who eat the fruit of the all-nourishing earth and who will bring hither perfect hecatombs. Against cruel death, neither Typhus, her consort, shall avail you, nor ill-famed Chimera, her spawn, 
but here shall the earth and shining Hyperion make you rot. Thus said Phobos, exulting over her, and darkness covered her eyes, and the holy strength of Helios made her rot away there. Wherefore, the place is now called Pitho, the rotting, and men called the Lord Apollon by another name, Pythian, because on that spot the power of piercing Helios made the monster rot away. So our monster, our, our modern word of python, of which comes from this story, actually in ancient Greek, it's thought to actually mean the rotting one or to rot away. So that is another description for her, which is interesting. Yeah, it's it's really interesting um, because uh, in my field, what I've learned is that for the Greeks and the Romans, there's really a strong association between snakes or serpents and female sexuality, female fertility in particular. And we see it in other places too, right? We have Eve and the serpent. Um, sometimes there's associations with Lilith and serpents as well. And I know it exists in other places, but for the ancient periods, like this was kind of seen as a good thing. So Roman women, for instance, they couldn't wear jewelry without appearing ostentatious. So it was like that was frowned upon unless unless they they circumvented this was like, but what if I'm using it functionally to promote female fertility? So you'll find a lot of gold armbands that are molded into the shape of snakes and things like that. Yeah. So like snakes have this really interesting, strong association with female fertility. And I wonder if it's because snakes can sometimes um, they can do they don't need a male snake. Right. This is common in quite a few reptiles and amphibians can do it, too. If there is no male present in a female population for a very long period of time, they will just lay their own fertile eggs without a man. And it's Mm -hmm. really interesting because if you look at some Greek texts, especially medical texts, Men are horrified of that possibility that if if women could achieve that, why would they need men? So they're achieving the dream is what I'm hearing. Yeah. So I I don't like no one really knows why specifically. Like I said, that's one possible explanation that I could think of. There is this association between female fertility and snakes. No idea why. No one's really clear on that. Everyone just knows it's a thing. So I see their vision. Yeah. And I will achieve it. That was the one thing I was going to ask Colin. Like, Colin, you got any insight for us on snakes? Because Colin was supposed to join us, but flaked. Uh, that's okay. He, he's he signed up for episode six officially. So we get that. Echidna shows up in the train looking like a Midwest suburban mom just going about her day, I guess. But she continues, like I mentioned, she continues that conversation between Mm -hmm. like, what is a monster and what is a hero, which I'm so glad. It's like, please continue to complicate this concept. And she's like, dude, we're family. This is a family affair. And then I had to look and it's like, who is she referring to as grandmother and great grandmother? And it's of Gaia, Earth itself. So just if anyone was wondering, it's like, who is that supposed to be? Gaia, Mother Earth is really all our mothers, right? There's so many moms in this episode. But I like that she points out, like, eventually it's like, to my eye, the demigod is more dangerous creature. I love that line. And then she describes them as disruptive, violent, and it's my job to put you down. And I'm like, okay, see, I like her motivation. And I can also totally understand that, like, if we need to slay someone, we need to slay her. Because, like, she has made the the stakes very clear that it's like, either I get you or you get me. I like that it turns Echidna from just being a monster into being a mother seeking justice for her children. Because to her, it is justice. I feel like this really establishes a pattern I wasn't seeing before, which is that, like, all the monsters are kind of, like, humanized in a way. And that's what's nice, because Echidna just doesn't have some of the baggage that Medusa had. 
I also thought it was interesting that she used the lines disruptive and violent because it kind of reminded me of this like overall argument of like tradition versus revolution of like, you know, people will talk about Black Lives Matter marches being violent or disruptive. And it's like that can be used to be like demonize a side who is trying to make change. So I thought that was interesting choice of words to describe it. And there's something I forgot about. My bad as a Percy Jackson expert, but Percy gets attacked by a hellhound when he's in camp, like right after he gets claimed the river slash lake. And they left that out. And I also completely forgot about it. And it's supposed to be like this big blah, because they're like, oh, who let the monster into camp? Someone had to let it in. And now that I think about it, I don't know what they're doing with Luke because they're either trying to subtract from his villainous side, but it could work in the favor of being like, oh, I just want the gods. I don't want anyone else to get hurt. Yeah. But I don't know. That kind of makes him less villainous in my eyes. That makes me so was the prophecy from episode three much different than what it was in the book? Because like that's prepping us for the idea that Percy is going to be betrayed by someone that he trusts. No, no, it's word for word. Okay. I was curious because it's like maybe they must have just figured that prophecy was enough then to like set it up. They didn't need the the use of the hellhound to further introduce the idea of like a mole among in the midst or something like that. Maybe, but I also think the hellhound just wouldn't have fit thematically. Echidna. Ends with a gut punch of a line that I love. And here it is. I needed you to understand what was happening so that she could track the scent. So that she could learn and grow because that's what a good mother does for her children. Not that you would know. That was so out of pocket. Not that you would know. I know she's a monster. Honestly, I kind of burned Echidna. Maybe I'm evil. Like maybe (laughs) another person would be like, oh, how could you say that to a child? No, I'd say it to multiple children. That's just it, right? Like she makes an excellent point. Not for Percy. Percy's like, hey, my mom was awesome. But like, generally speaking, if you're talking about a good parent, uh, a lot of them don't have stellar examples of that. Uh, to work with so i just kind of love that i i like what they did with her character a lot i think it was really fun i wanted to say that the cinematography the music the acting it was all oh it was so good this episode echidna was really good um the actress like killed that percy walker did a great job like those bags those under eye bags me too me too babe he's just like me for real yeah we uh we reround the episode to watch like the part where he's like tricking annabeth again mm-hmm. because that's just such a quintessential Percy Jackson move. That's what exactly what he would do. Mm-hmm. He is a self-sacrificing idiot, and he absolutely would do that. I'm also just thinking to the moment it was like, "Hey, lady, we've already taken care of lots of monsters, so you better scooch along." Like that is a lot of bravado for a guy who's like just barely got out of Medusa's lair. <laughs> just saying, I don't know. I, I I appreciated it though. It's like, yes, that is what a 12 year old boy would say. I I don't, I wouldn't change a thing. It was also really interesting to see Percy's impertinence blow back on him. Yes. Because in the books, it never really does. They're just kind of like vaguely annoyed by Percy. Like he's like a wasp, like buzzing around their head. They're just like, oh, you're the kid. Um, Now it has direct consequences. Yes. And I think there was a specific reason they did that. And I think it was the Medusa storyline. So I'm going to, that's the last clip I have. Let me go ahead and play that for us really quick. Why would she do that? Annabeth. What did Echidna say to you? She said my impertinence wounded my mother's pride and that that will be my doom. 
impertinence? What kind of... Medusa's head. I embarrassed my mother. But I'm the one who sent the head to Olympus. I signed the note. And I went along with it. It embarrassed her. Now she's angry. Does that sound familiar to you? Annabeth is condemned for a man's actions. By her mother. Yep. By Athena. Yep. Just like Medusa, who she accused of being a liar for the almost the exact same story, right? Because Medusa says, I embarrassed her, and she decided to punish me, not him, me. And now Annabeth is going to have to deal with, like, I'm hope like, I have it as a, is this Annabeth's aha moment? Like, hopefully, like, sh- that's going to make her reflect back. I think yeah. it's got to be. Because Percy, who has been nothing but shit-talking his dad, like, the entire show, Poseidon saves Percy, even though he's done nothing but say bad stuff about him. Mm-hmm. Where's Athena, the one who gifted her kid an invisibility baseball cap? Mm-hmm. The one that has a child who is trying so hard for their attention. The one who's born literally out of their brain. It, they spring from her mind, like perfection. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which also brings up the question of, does Annabeth have a belly button? No, it's uh, there. I don't know if you know this. There was an old uh show. I want to say early two thousands called Kyle X Y, and he was a clone. And like not having a belly button was a whole thing. So like my mind immediately went to that as like that is a legitimate question <laughs> that I have now. On one hand, not born like typically they come down in like a golden cradle on a, with a parachute. But like then again, why would Athena make anything that doesn't look incredibly human? Yeah. So I go back and forth. We could leave that as a poll question on Spotify. What do you guys think? Does Annabeth have a belly button? <laughs> okay, wait. Why would that actually kind of be good? Yeah, I'll make that the question for Spotify because I can do that. So, um, yeah. So I I liked that moment because it gives me hope for Medusa's storyline down as we continue. Um, and then, yeah, I like that Echidna is complicating this whole concept of heroes and monsters once again. That is great. Um, but guess what? Something is still pissing me off about this episode. It wouldn't be our minisodes if it didn't. I know. Are you ready? Are you ready to hear Tell it? Tell me. So what is pissing me off? Why does every single monster or bad person have to be female so far? Especially when you point out they got rid of the hellhound. So Annabeth's stepmom was made the bad person in that story. Why not make Athena buy and have her be a gift to Annabeth's another mother? Ooh. Or something like Fun that. Fun fact, um, in the Trials of Apollo, I haven't read them because I I think the Percy Jackson series ends perfectly and I didn't really like Heroes of Olympus that much. But I do know that in the Trials of Apollo, it's revealed that Apollo had a kid with another man. So like Rick just casually dropped like, yeah, Impreg is canon. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's because the monsters are set up as mirrors. Um, the monsters are who Annabeth could end up being like Medusa. Echidna is who Annabeth's mom should be, or at least the attitude she mm. should have for her. Okay. I yeah, and Echidna makes sense. Why gender the Chimera? Oh damn, I didn't catch that actually. Why call her a good girl? The Chimera is also female. And I'm like, really? Really? You had to go the extra mile there on that one? Even further, Athena full out abandons Annabeth, which serves the Medusa line. And then we're told that Poseidon is a great daddy and he's always been there for Percy and he saved him and yay. But we're told that by a woman, so it's okay. We're being shown Athena terrible, Poseidon great. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I think, and, and 
I mean, the books do kind of like Poseidon is kind of like presented as the only good demigod parent in the books. I would say Hades is presented pretty well to his kids. Well, then we we also have Sally at not her best parenting moment. Interesting. Right? This is Sally's not her greatest moment. And it like I don't find it problematic. It was a human moment, but it's like, but why this episode that we had to do that? And um, so I, I really do think there's some unexamined misogyny happening here. And I, I, you probably saw this at the title, but I kind of joked, is this the mother of monsters or monstrous mothers? Like, what is the theme? Ooh. Um, and that kind of brings me to like the importance of Kidna. This is from one of my favorite books I've read. It's called um, Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, Monstrosity, Patriarchy, and the Fear of Female Power. And specifically Ooh. talking about characters like Echidna, um, Sadie Doyle, this is what she says. This mother is a fantasy about the life and death power women might have wielded before reproduction was put under male control. Or maybe she's a memory from the wordless caveman time of infancy, a blurred recollection of how huge and unthinkably powerful our own mothers seemed to be before we learned they were second-class citizens. Or just maybe... The mother is only portrayed as archaic, extinct, primeval, older than time, to disguise the fact that her true home lies in the future. Maybe when men say, this is what it was like before we took control, they mean, this is what will happen if we lose. And I'm like, I love that line. So, Kidna, you go. You do what you need to do. You put those demigods in their place. In the words of my very good friend, fuck them, kids. Right? They haven't even saved an animal yet, Grover. Go save an animal, at least. Wait, they do say they do that in the book. Because I'm like, you guys, you've achieved nothing right now. Other than cutting off Medusa's head, I guess is an achievement, but... Ugh. I think it's like a pink poodle named Gladiola or something like that, that they find, like, wandering around the forest and have to... Like, Grover's like, no, we have to return it before we go what? any further. Wait, that would have been such a good yeah. Grover moment. You guys are shortchanging Grover. And I am sad for him. And that could have actually been a good deed you would have achieved so far. Yeah, so far they've just been a menace. Yeah. They've been violent, disruptive. And really, Echidna needs to put them in, her, in their place. Ooh. Um, this, this episode was also really satisfying visually. Mm -hmm. Like, the visuals have been they good have. so far. But the, the camera work was really good. Especially, like, when it was, like, trying to, like, showcase, like, Percy. Like, like when it went mm -hmm. fuzzy. Because Percy yep. was poisoned. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was good. It was. I mean, like, the, there's so much to, like, not complain about. The things I'm complaining about are, like, these are deep cuts, y'all. I don't I don't know how else to... This is actually my favorite episode. I liked yeah, it. No, it was very enjoyable. I, I like, again, because Echidna doesn't have the baggage. And so that's really easy to work with. But can we please get, like, we haven't seen a male monster since the minotaur who also got like no kind of background story whatsoever so like do better with your monsters you're trying to make this point that monsters aren't necessarily monstrous but you're not making us sympathetic to them at all so i felt pretty sympathetic to echidna but she i thought she was def i thought i thought medusa and echidna were definitely supposed to be sympathetic villains yeah but then i mean they beheaded medusa so that's my biggest yeah I didn't say that the kids were more morally corrupt. Fair. Fair. Don't trust them kids. Mm -mm. They're out to get us. Yeah. 
if you're on the wrong side of the gods, you're probably in some trouble. Just saying. Also, okay, last question, and then we'll outro this. Um, is there any high school demigods? Like, there's a lot being put on 12-year-olds that I don't quite understand. Luke is 15 or so. He might be 16. Um, but the reason there are no older demigods is because, canonically, they don't live that long. Like, their lives are in so much danger that they are killed before they reach that age. Womp womp. I just, I was just like, we're, we're hating the Greek gods, right? Well, yep, that's my takeaway. <laughs> Nothing should make you hate the Greek gods more yeah, than Yeah, they're this. not meant to be good figures. Which is, I, you know, it's a, like, interesting. Did Rick have a falling out with his dad or something? Like, what happened in this time frame? In the last 15 years, the last 15 years have made Rick very jaded. <laughs> His, his son became a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I should answer your question. <laughs> Dad, I don't want to hear about Percy Jackson anymore. It's not cool now. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that would have to hurt. I wrote this best-selling book series for you. What do you mean? <laughs> As always, special thanks to Hannah, keeping us informed on Percy Jackson's source material. We'll be back next week to react and analyze episode 5 of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, where I think we'll get to finally meet some of the gods, and not just another Lin-Manuel Miranda jump scare. Um, as for you listeners, <laughs> you can find us on most major streaming platforms, as well as MoviesWeDig.com. Please like, review, and subscribe if you like what you hear. You can also follow on Instagram, Facebook, and Blue Sky under some variation of the handle at Movies We Dig. Let us know what you thought about Echidna's extended role in this episode, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.